Well, it's a privilege to be with you here again to bring God's Word. As uh, uh, Greg said, my name is Terry Stauffer, and we've been attending here just since um, the end of December. And I have been uh, pastor for quite a few years, so Nate didn't just ask a random newcomer to, to preach at the church here. Uh, please take your Bibles and turn with me to Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2, and we're going to look at an account that may have caused you to raise your eyebrows. Uh, our brother Shane just read uh, from Mark the choosing of the twelve apostles, and of course we have Simon, Peter, who is such a key apostle, one of the inner three of the twelve apostles. And uh, he comes up in our passage today, but he is one being confronted and challenged for his behavior by the Apostle Paul in our text this morning. And we're going to look at Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 to 14, and we'll read those verses in just a minute. <clears throat> title of this week's message is, Is Defending the Gospel. Do you remember the last time you had to confront somebody? Some of you may be smiling uh, internally because it might have been really recently that you had to confront someone for their bad behavior. Sometimes we have to speak up for what is right. And if we have good reason, it's all, often the most loving thing that we can do to confront someone. We might have to speak up for the sake of our family, our community, or for an employer. But conflict is never pleasant. We certainly are seeing a lot of confrontation and conflict in our, in our Canadian culture these days, aren't we? I'm not going to comment on these political events. I hope that these verses we are considering today help us to keep the main thing the main thing in the church as Christians. In Galatians 2, the Apostle Paul tells us he had to confront the Apostle Peter about his conduct in the church at Antioch. Paul did this out of love for the Gentile Christians that he was called to serve, and it was also out of his love out of, for his friends Peter and Barnabas and other Jewish Christians in Antioch. Defending the gospel is not something abstract or academic. Defending the gospel is about helping people for whom Christ died. God has preserved this conflict in the pages of Scripture for our instruction, and we find it as a part of Paul's defense of the Word of God and the Gospel of Jesus Christ in the book of Galatians. So let's read Galatians chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 11 to 14. Galatians chapter 2, verse 11. Apostle Paul writes, But when Cephas, or Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, 
If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Before we continue, let's, uh, let's ask the Lord to help me and us as I speak and you listen this morning. Father, we thank you for this text of Scripture. We thank you for the context of uh, such a, a glorious defense of the gospel here in the book of Galatians. I pray that as we are all watching the news and as we are having conversations with family members and, and neighbors and friends that, that sometimes maybe feel more confrontational than we like, I pray that this text would be helpful for all of us to, to know best how to shine the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ in our time. Thank you for your help, and I pray that I would be clear and faithful to Scripture and that all of us would be have hearts ready to hear from you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we get into our, our points of these particular verses, I'd like to set just a little bit of context. The Apostle Paul used an illustration from his time at Antioch to correct the Christians in the churches at Galatia. Antioch was a significant city in the Roman Empire, and there were many Jews there and had been for a long time. The Romans had tolerated the Jewish people, but ten years earlier there was a persecution that broke out by the Roman emperor. No one wanted any more persecution. But the growth and the differences of this Christian movement that were catching hold were leading to more persecution. Uh, we see an application of that, and, and you may know in the book of Galatians that Paul is confronting false teaching, a, a form of legalism by the people he called the Judaizers, the people that wanted to impose circumcision and the Jewish law upon Gentile Christians. And right near the end of Galatians, uh, you can either listen or turn there with me quickly, we, we see part of the motivation of these false teachers in Galatians chapter 6, verse 12. He says, It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. So we get a bit of a background as to some of the stakes involved in identifying as primarily Jewish or primarily Christian. We know Peter, who is called Cephas here. He was one of the inner circle of Jesus' disciples, and he not only preached that first sermon in the book of Acts at the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, he also preached the first sermon to a Gentile household. Remember in Acts 10, the Holy Spirit was given to these, these Gentile believers. Barnabas was an important figure in the local church, in the early church as well. He introduced Paul to the Jerusalem leaders when they were afraid of him. He also introduced Paul to the Gentile believers in Antioch. Barnabas was a real bridge builder. He was known as the son of encouragement. His real name was Joseph. Barnabas was a nickname, which means son of encouragement. In the first part of Galatians 2, we read about a trip that Paul and Barnabas took to Jerusalem. Titus, a Gentile Christian, was not forced to be circumcised, even though there were some that insisted that to become a Christian, you had to become a Jew first and take all those Jewish identity markers on. At that time, Paul said, and we read this in Galatians 2, 5, 
We did not yield in submission to them, even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. With that gospel truth established, the Jerusalem leaders extended the right hand of fellowship to Paul and Barnabas, saying, Keep preaching this gospel to the Gentiles. What was at stake in Antioch was a, a ther serious theological and practical issue for the church. Could non-Jewish followers of Jesus and Jewish believers have fellowship together in the same church? Could Jews and Gentiles come together as Christians? This is very early in the history of the church. Churches did not have what we now call the New Testament. They had the apostolic teaching, including letters like Galatians. But it was not organized in a book like we would recognize. Earlier in chapter 2, we read that the Jew Jewish leaders, Jerusalem leaders in, in Jerusalem, uh, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem, said, go and preach the gospel to the Gentiles. We'll keep building up the Jewish church. But, but that wasn't enough. The church had to sort out what it meant for Jewish and Gentile Christians to be in a church together. Neither Jewish nor Gentile, but Christians. The followers of Christ actually were first called Christians in Antioch, and this was likely meant as an insult, but Christians embraced this name and wore it as a badge of honor. They were happy to be called Christ ones, Christ's people, to identify with him even in his sufferings. In the letter to Galatians up to this point, Paul has been defending his status as an apostle. And if Paul were not an apostle, he would not have been able to confront Peter as he did, especially publicly. But more than that, Paul was right. Peter was wrong. And the church followed Paul's teaching. Yes, including Peter and Barnabas and the others. The church would come to flourish as one church made up of Jews and Gentiles gathered as Christians. As we look at Paul's confrontation of Peter and the Jewish Christians in Galatians, we can learn some important lessons for how we live before God as the church. I have a simple three-point outline, and I'll repeat the points as we go, but I'll give them to you right off the, the top if you're taking notes. First of all, guard the truth. Point number one, guard the truth. Secondly, walk the way. And then share the life. Guard the truth, walk the way, and share the life. First of all, guard the truth. One of the things that we have to guard is what gospel means. Gospel is good news. It's a declaration of what is finished in Jesus Christ, what we receive from God. It is not good advice. It's not a do this and live, but rather believe this and live because Christ has finished it. The trouble in the churches of Galatia was that the false teachers were saying, you must be circumcised and obey the law of Moses before you can call yourself a Christian. Peter knew that wasn't the gospel, just as much as Paul did. Peter did not believe that people had to become Jews before they could become Christians. 
Listen to what he said to Cornelius, that Gentile God-fearer in Acts chapter 10. This is Acts 10, 28 and 29. You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. And then Peter preached the gospel to them and talked about what God had done for them right there in the home of Cornelius. God accepted the Gentiles and gave them new life in Christ. He poured out the Holy Spirit on them, just as he did upon the, the Jewish believers in Jerusalem. The Jerusalem church concluded after that that God has indeed accepted them. And James, the leader of the church in Jerusalem, said that the Gentiles receiving the Holy Spirit and believing the good news of the Messiah was evidence that God was rebuilding the fallen tent of David. This was establishing David's house, even among the Gentiles. When Peter went to Antioch, he did not hesitate to eat with the Gentile believers, and so far, so good. But then men from Jerusalem came, and Peter began to withdraw from the Gentiles, and eat only with the Jewish Christians. When Paul confronted Peter, he did not say that he was cursed, like he said about the false teachers in chapter 1, or that he was a false brother, like those who wanted to circumcise Titus in chapter 2. But in Galatians 2.11, Paul says something very strong. He says, When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. The King James says that he was to be blamed. Peter wasn't cursed. He wasn't a false brother. But he was giving ammunition to the false teachers and compromising with their bad doctrine. And he was not guarding the truth. We need to think about this carefully today. Our theology, our doctrine, our understanding of the gospel might be sound, but... Are there things that I do or say that encourage false teachers? Even if I'm not personally denying the gospel? Peter knew the gospel. He preached the good news. He preached that Jesus died and rose again from the dead according to the scriptures and that peace with God is found in Christ alone. And yet he was wrong about the application of the gospel in the Christian community. God used Paul to confront Peter publicly. And that must have been quite a scene. Imagine, would there have been a more honored guest than Peter? It was urgent for the early church to sort out this relationship between law and gospel. This struggle led to the council in Jerusalem. And there's some debate about the, the dating of Galatians, but I think Galatians was written right before that council in Jerusalem that, that sorted this matter out. We read about that council in Acts chapter 15. But I'm so thankful that the church had this trouble and came to a clear gospel resolution early and that it's recorded for us in God's Word. Here are a few things to consider regarding this confrontation. Remember, it wasn't just Peter that was guilty of compromising the gospel. Paul says the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with Peter. And Barnabas, even Barnabas, that son of encouragement, 
was led astray by this compromise. This compromise probably happened little by little, over time. It's the way that sin and error finds a foothold in the church and in our lives, little by little, over time. I think we're safe to assume that Paul was away from Antioch for a time and came back to find this mess, and that's why he confronted Peter publicly. This confrontation, praise God, proved to be a speed bump and not a cliff for the church. Peter and Barnabas heard the truth of what Paul was saying, agreed with him, and turned from their error. It did not derail the mission, far from it. It redefined the, the church. It, it, it refined the church and, and, and the definition of what the church is and set the gospel in relief against the opinions of men and gave glory to God. God can use conflict and confrontation and problems that way, and he often does, to refine the church. And when Christians humbly repent and turn, it can lead to greater love and unity. Paul did not launch a personal attack on Peter. Paul was defending the truth. The love of Christ drove Paul to confront Peter, and it worked. Praise the Lord. Take note of the letter from the council at Jerusalem, which included Peter, along with James and many of the others. They wrote that letter to all the churches to bring unity and assurance to the Gentile Christians. Part of what they wrote in that letter in Acts 15 says, Because we have heard that some without our authorization went out from us and troubled you with their words and unsettled our, your hearts, then they wrote this letter to say that you don't have to keep the Jewish law or be circumcised to be a Christian. The men from James were wrong, and James and Peter knew it eventually. Consider what Peter said about Paul years later in 2 Peter chapter 3. He wrote, Also regarding the patience of our Lord as an opportunity for salvation, just as our dear brother Paul has written to you according to the wisdom given him, he speaks about these things in all his letters in which there are some matters that are hard to understand. The untaught and unstable twist them to their own destruction as they also do with the rest of scriptures. So Peter later on commended Paul and even commended his writing as a part of the scriptures. It's so important to be, for us to be clear on the authority and sufficiency of the, the word of God and through the Bible to defend the gospel. This is the only way to receive the grace and life that God offers us to us as a gift in Jesus Christ our Lord. So why did Paul confront Peter? To guard the truth. But that truth is not just head knowledge. We must live according to that truth, and that leads us to our second point this morning. We're to guard the truth, and secondly, walk the way. Walk the way. The problem with Peter, Barnabas, and the other Jewish believers in Antioch was not in what they said they believed, but how they lived out their Christian life. 2.14 says, But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? 
Their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. I'm not a Greek expert, but every once in a while I'll mention a Greek word because we have a corresponding word in English that we go, aha, yeah, we kind of know where that comes from. The Greek word behind not in step is the word from which we get our word orthopedics. And it literally means straight feet. We are just talking to a friend last night that was talking about what a difference the orthopedic inserts in his shoes were making for his foot health. When it comes to God's truth, God's word warns us, do not turn aside to the left or to the right. That's walking language, isn't it? In other words, as we worship God and follow his commands, we need to walk straight, walk in the way of the gospel. Later in Galatians, Paul uses the walking illustration again in chapter 5 when he talks about the fruit of the Spirit. He says, keep in step with the Spirit and later walk by the Spirit. Peter called, uh, Paul called Peter's crooked walking hypocrisy. That means claiming one thing and living in a different way. In other words, Peter and the others knew better but they went astray in how they walked. Imagine a fire and brimstone preacher who always shouts against the evils of alcohol and then goes and gets drunk every weekend. Or an activist that protests the need for more affordable housing but then complains and writes letters when a new low-rent facility is planned for her neighborhood. We understand hypocrisy and it's not just religious people that are guilty of hypocrisy. It's, it's part of our being sinful human beings that we are prone to be hypocritical. Why were Peter and the others hypocritical? Well, clearly in this example, it's because Peter had been eating with the Gentiles in full fellowship as equal Christians. But then when the Jewish leaders came, the other influential people, he pulled away from eating with the Gentiles. He wasn't concerned about separating from the unclean Gentiles earlier because he was enjoying freedom in Christ with them, walking in step with the gospel. But when some guys from Jerusalem came along, they didn't like what they saw, and Peter ditched his new Gentile friends and abandoned his own freedom in Christ for the sake of getting along with these Jerusalem Jews. He didn't see the damage he was doing to the Gentile Christians in Antioch. The non-Jewish Christians saw what Peter was doing as a requirement to live with a Jew if they were going to be real Christians. And even if Peter didn't completely believe that or go along with that, that was the message he was sending by his actions. 14b again, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile, not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? I would hope and pray, and I imagine it's what happened, that when Peter heard that line, force the Gentiles to live like Jews, he went, oh my, that's not what I intended. We're not told the rest of the story here. But the illustration is here and left hanging. We know how it works out because of what Peter wrote later and history of the church and all that. But it's left hanging here because this is exactly the problem that was happening in Galatia as false teachers had come and tried to impose the law 
on the Gentile Christians. On the other hand, Peter may have thought, I'm not forcing anyone, they're free to do as they please. But then he had to reconsider. His example as an influential Christian leader was speaking a false gospel, no matter what he said he believed. Walking the way is important to those who are watching us. Sometimes the way others understand what they see us do will undermine what we say we believe. That's a relevant point at a time where we see professing Christians that are protesting and speaking out against the government. What message are we sending to our unbelieving friends and neighbors about Christianity? I'm not talking about the rightness or wrongness of the protests, and some of you might be rising up and saying, what is he saying? But apply what's going on in Canada, with mandates and protests and things, to how we are walking out the reality of the gospel and the testimony of our local body. What do my actions and my words say about the gospel of Jesus Christ? If you're beginning to think that living a Christian life out in the open is a dangerous business, you would be right. And that would be true in all of church history. But our last point makes it clear that out in the open is exactly what God calls us to do as we follow Jesus Christ and embrace the good news that he brings to us. We must guard the truth, walk the way, and the last point is share the life. Point number three, share the life. Did you notice that the trouble in Antioch was table trouble? It centered on Christians eating or not eating together. In our private eat-on-the-run culture, we don't often appreciate the value and ceremony of a fellowship meal. In history and many other cultures today, sharing a meal together, sharing food together, is a big deal. You drop everything and focus on that, because that is the thing. To enter a home and eat with a family or community is to come under the blessing of the host. There's a sacred unity in the breaking and eating of bread together. There are many, many examples in God's Word of eating and drinking together and even having that table fellowship with God Himself. Wonder of wonders, miracle of mercy and grace. To share a meal with someone is to say, come and share life with me. Studies have shown that families who live under the same roof increasingly don't eat together. How much more do we neglect sharing a table with people who are different from us? That is, practicing hospitality. Peter and his friends withdrew from eating with Gentile Christians. Well, why was that so bad? Well, without denying the gospel outright, Peter was saying, observant Jews are more Christian than you Gentile sinners. That, in turn, put the spotlight on human works, the works of the law, as Paul calls them, as the path to better or superior Christianity. Paul continues this line of reasoning in his talking about this, this confrontation with Peter. In chapter 2, all the way to the end of the chapter, let's look at those verses. We're not going to unpack them this morning, but just I'll let them leave an impression on us here. Galatians chapter 2, verse 15. Remember, this is hard on the heels of, of Paul's confrontation of Peter. 
We ourselves, he says in verse 15, are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law I died to the law that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. The compromising, temporarily hypocritical Peter was creating false categories, righteous Jews and Gentile sinners. Paul blew that up by reminding him that these are the wrong categories. There's only one category of human being, sinners in need of God's grace, whether under the law or apart from the law. As Christians, this is the only place to begin our fellowship with other believers. And may I say, our fellowship as pre-evangelism with those whom Christ is calling that are not yet believers. We're all bankrupt, needy sinners that equally need God's forgiveness and grace. No matter our background, class, and ethnicity, sin is our common denominator as human beings. Grace is our common denominator and our common basis of fellowship as Christians. Being a Christian is a third way. It must be our primary identity, not Jewish or Gentile, not Canadian or African, not rich or poor, not conservative or liberal, not young or old, Christian. Circumcision, the Old Testament food laws, not eating with Gentiles, these are all Jewish identity markers. The gospel of Jesus Christ transcends these identity markers. As Christians, we have identity markers too, particularly in our different denominations and tribes and traditions. Some of these are wrong identity markers. Some of these are perfectly fine things that still might get in the way of the gospel. Politics, morally debatable practices, the dress code, class, ethnicity, the list goes on. So what are Christian identity markers? What is the basis of our identity? Well, in the letters in the New Testament, for you grammar nerds out there, you may recognize the words indicative and imperative. The first part of the letters, like a book like the Galatians or Romans or, or any of the other uh, New Testament letters, usually have the indicative. That indicates the way things are, what God has done by His sovereign grace to secure our salvation. But then often somewhere in the middle of the book we have the word therefore, and then we get the rules for living. That's the imperative. If these things are true, therefore live this way. 
So the indicative, these declarations of first importance, these are the defend the truth doctrines about God, man, the work of Christ for us. This is the news that we are to know and guard. But the imperative, these are the walk the way commands, the how then shall we live directions for the home and the church, in the fruit of the Spirit, and in love in Christian community. Generally speaking, as we, we read the New Testament, we'll find these in, in all of the, the letters. And, and these are the things, the indicative that we must believe, and then the imperative is the application of these truths that we must believe. Now for Christians today in Canada, the keeping of the food laws, feasts, purity laws of Moses isn't much of a temptation for most of us. It's not something that we encounter. We have different issues. We might say, you have to dress the way we dress. I'm kind of wearing a preaching uniform, missing the tie. Sorry about that. But we have to dress the way we dress. We have to speak the way we speak and do the things we do in order for us to accept you as a Christian. And remember, it's not just the, 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 the head acknowledgement. It's the way we walk and the table that we share together. We have our own traditions and barriers, and we, like Peter and the others, may be largely blind to them. By refusing to eat with the Gentiles, Peter was saying by his actions that he had a place for the uncircumcised Gentiles. Their place was over there, maybe in another building, with their unclean food and their unwashed hands. How might we do things like this today? Well, do we have blind spots regarding folks from a different ethnic background that comes through the, come through the doors of the church? Will we make a point in hospitality, sitting with a person that doesn't look like us, or dress like us, or talk like us? Will we make a point with sitting with them at a potluck, or, or, or talk to them in the foyer over the service, or invite them to our home for a meal? We might have to ask them what they eat, but that's okay. Small play, price to play, pay to have that kind of table fellowship. Is that in or outside of your comfort zone as a believer? Imagine a new family comes to church and you invite them to lunch and you find out they're just trying out church for the first time and in the course of the conversation you find out that they think our new prime minister, our prime minister currently is, is doing a great job and they vote NDP provincially. <laughs> How will you respond to that? These are people you don't know whether they confess to be believers in Christ, but they were drawn to a church. Well, who drew them? What do they need to know? This can go the other way as well, but I kind of figure at Beaumont that was the right illustration to use. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with spending time with people that are like us, that think like us, friends in the same stage of life as us, from the same culture with the same interests. But fellow believer, brothers and sisters, we need to look around us at our neighborhoods. Who's out there? And who's in here? The preacher's preaching to himself very much right now. What if the gospel calls us to share life with people who are not like us? To testify to the grace of God and the power of the gospel? To break down dividing walls? 
The gospel says God is for you and he proved this by sending his son to die for your sins that you might be forgiven and reconciled to him. God raised this Jesus from the dead. He defeated sin and death and gives eternal life to all people who will receive this message by grace through faith. We who were once outsiders have been called and welcomed inside by God's loving invitation. We should cherish that. We're called to invite other outsiders to God's household with the good news of God's grace and mercy to outsiders without all the cultural conditions. Pray and ask God, as I pray and ask God, to reveal your blind spots that may be a hindrance to gospel fellowship with people that are not like us. We're called to be God's people, as salt and light in this world. Peter and Barnabas didn't set out to undermine the church. Are there ways that my attitude to other people and different opinions might undermine the ministry of my church? We can't say, oh, that's not me. Remember, this is Peter. This is Peter. If, if the great foundational apostle Peter could blow it, we can blow it. The error was Peter's. God did not make him compromise in this hypocrisy. Peter freely chose the wrong actions. But God preserved this incident so that we might not put our trust in men, but God and his word alone. Paul's confrontation to Peter is not an illustration of his authority over Peter, but a declaration of the authority of the Word of God and the centrality of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. In conclusion, you might notice that my outline is about the truth, the way, and the life. I've got the order a little bit wrong, but that might remind you of something Jesus said in the Gospel of John. John 14, 6, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If we're going to guard the truth of the gospel, walk in the way of the gospel, and share the life of the gospel, we must be focused on Jesus all the time. Don't assume that you know enough about, the God, God, about God and the gospel. Make Jesus Christ the object of your meditation, your study, your joy. Grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, the gospel and its implications in every area of your life. Watch your walk. There are subtle ways that we may walk with crooked feet and lie about the gospel in the way that we live and speak. No one drifts into holiness. We're in a spiritual war. Resolve to share your life with other people. Show hospitality to people who are not like you. It might be awkward, but it's worth it for the sake of gospel love and that demonstration of the glory of God in, in unity, in diversity, in the body of Christ. It's a joyful responsibility for every Christian to guard the truth, walk the way, and share the life with other believers. This is gospel partnership, but... We're also called to be light to those who do not yet know Jesus Christ. Jesus said, The world will know we are Christians by our love for one another, and this is the one who, this is how we follow the one 
who loved us first and gave himself for us while we were still his enemies. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this awkward and difficult section of scripture. Thank you that you preserve this incident in your word and the results of it in your word so that we may learn how to welcome those who are different from us in the gospel. Lord, may we love and guard the truth, but Lord, may our feet be straight as we follow Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit. And Father, pray that we would be better and better all the time and sharing life, not just with people who are like us, but with people who make us uncomfortable, so that we may watch you work through the power of the gospel to transform all of us more and more into the image of Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.